Hello, and you are listening to Eco Justice Radio, a project of SoCal 350 Climate Action. Our show presents environmental and climate stories from a social justice frame, featuring voices not necessarily heard on traditional, mainstream, or even public media outlets. I am your host, Jessica Aldridge, from Adventures in Waste. On today's show, Candidate Forum for Environmental Justice in South L.A., we are honored to speak with Fatima Iqbal Zuber, candidate for California State Assembly in District 64. The incumbent Assembly member and candidate, Mike Gibson, was asked to be on today's show, but did not return our request. California District 64 covers the regions of South Los Angeles and the South Bay. The district largely runs along the east side of Interstate 110 from South LA down towards the harbor. Fatima is a public school teacher in Watts, an immigrant and a community advocate. She's running to uplift the voices in her community, not the special interests, and is fighting for a cleaner and greener environment, including breathable air, clean water, and healthy food. In November, the 64th District of Southern California will be voting on their next assembly representative, either for the incumbent assembly member Mike Gibson or candidate Fatima Iqbal Zuber. The 64th District is home to some of the poorest areas in California and 25% of the state's oil refineries. The region covers the areas of Carson, Compton, Watts, Wilmington, Rancho Dominguez, West Rancho Dominguez, Harbor Gateway, Willowbrook, East Rancho Dominguez, and North Long Beach. On today's show, we get to know one of the candidates running for assembly, Fatima Iqbal Zuber. The incumbent assembly member, Mike Gibson, was asked to be on the show but did not return our requests. Fatima's campaign platform is founded on ending systemic racism in California Assembly District 64 by prioritizing clean water air, and food, supporting affordable housing and ending homelessness, pushing for health care for all, and reforming our education system, criminal justice, and immigration. Thank you for tuning in to Candidate Forum for Environmental Justice in South LA. At the time of this recording, due to COVID-19, we are all still practicing physical distancing and calling in from our respective homes. Unfortunately, we are still not in our normal KPFK studio in Los Angeles, so please bear with us on any sound quality issues. It is my honor to welcome our special guest joining us via phone, Fatima Iqbal Zuber, candidate for the California State Assembly in District 64. Welcome to EcoJustice Radio. Thank you so much for having me here. Thanks for coming. Fatima, in the upcoming November election, you are running against Assembly Member Mike Gibson to represent California State Assembly District 64. And as we said before, we invited the assembly member to today's show, but they did not return our requests. Tell us about yourself. What is your background? How did you get involved in politics? Yeah, I definitely didn't, you know, uh, this wasn't something when I was little, you know, saying I'm going to be a politician. Like, this is what I want to do. I really went in this because of a sense of urgency that I felt, you know, working in a public school in Watts. That's kind of like, that was kind of like the trigger point for me that caused me to go down this road. So, you know, I want to bring up that I've been, I've grown up in many different governments, many different countries. And, you know, being an adult, that's definitely shaped my worldview. You know, I lived in Canada, I became a Canadian citizen, I was in all, you know, the government of Canada treats refugees better, treats immigrants better, regardless, you know, they do have an awful history with Indigenous people. But there's many things that country does a lot better than than we do and than, than we can do, right? And so, that definitely affected me as well, just growing up in different societies, you know, uh, under different governments. Working as a public high school teacher in Watts really changed me. I mean, I actually started working there around the time Bernie Sanders started his first run for office. And so, you know, the issues that he brought up nationally on a national scale about money and politics and how that influences policy, I was really seeing that in Watts, which is a very marginalized community, largely black and brown. You know, we have this awful president in the White House now. We have our federal government, you know, in chaos. But the truth of it is, it's really, you know, the people that are affected the most are the most marginalized communities are those in the lower income. And so, you know, that is the community that has really been impacted. And I saw that. So, you know, when I I taught as a teacher at school, what first opened my eyes was that my kids didn't have clean water to drink. 
you know, I found out this was happening in other schools in Watts and that, you know, as teachers, we were drinking filtered water and the kids, you know, were drinking the unclean water. And then when I dug a little deeper, I found out that our school was built without following environmental code. A lot of the kids lived in the projects, which was built on top of an old steel factory after World War II and extremely toxic soil, extremely toxic water. Our football field had, had toxic chemicals on it, lead, arsenic, and there was a toxic recycling facility by our school. So, you know, obviously this was, you know, I, this isn't right. This wasn't right. And so I always, as a teacher, tried to bring experiences from the community into my teaching. You know, I, I, was, I never used a textbook. It was all about articles, project-based learning. Let's go look at the air quality. Let's go outside. And, you know, I always try to engage my students. So we started doing that. I started, you know, I wanted to see what, what was being done in the community. And a lot was being done. A lot was being done. What I found, though, is that there's a there's an extreme distrust between the organizers in, in Watts, right, and what city and state officials, there's distrust between those two entities, and, and rightly so, right? If you look at a lot of our politicians, they're really bought out by big oil, by the tobacco industry, by natural gas, right, by the police industry. I mean, it's not just environmental, it's about justice, right? And so this distrust has, has come because... When they have advocated in the past, they haven't really seen changes happen or they've been honestly taken advantage of, right, or lied to and given false promises. And so that first opened my eyes. And first, I actually didn't know about my opponent, and I, I, but I was moved to say, Let, let's see what, you know, let me try to make a change. So I actually applied to be his commissioner. I was appointed education commissioner. You know, I was only in that position a few months um, and, and because I found myself being very quiet in those situations when I'm usually not a quiet person. And it was because I felt like that position was more you know, to be like, what, what is the change you can do in our community? Here's an event that the assembly members having, you know, pass this fire out. And I wanted to be in a position where I could really make impactful change, you know, and I realized that this is not what he was about. And, and then, you know, doing some work with food and water action, looking into his votes. I remember being in my living room one day, you know, this was pre-COVID. My son was at school. My husband was at work. I was in my living room, you know, upstairs. It was, I think, one of the days off we had his teacher. It was the summer or something. And, I was on the on the phone with this food and water action activist and, you know, she said I, I wasn't going to run. You know, I wasn't going to run. I wanted to bring more change to the community. I wanted to do more community work. I was part of this organization called Watts Rising. I wanted to expand on my community work. And and she said, you know, why not just look at his record? Let's just look at his record. And I didn't know because, you know, this has been a very blue district, very always to go into a Democrat. And so, frankly, I voted for him because I, I tend to vote for Democrats, right? And um, didn't know his record. And I just had tears in my eyes when I found out his absent votes and his, um, you know, no votes on SB 100 and most recently absent on AB 345 and a lot of important bills. I think every bill this legislative session related to the environment, he hasn't voted yes on. Um, and so this has just been a record of him for environmental issues the past seven years. There's other issues, but it was enough to, to you know, make me think about my students and the injustice and what he had the power to change, but didn't. And when I knew when I, there wasn't any progressive running education and just, you know, living a good life, that, that shouldn't wait two years. That could affect a child's development. That could affect a mother's pregnancy. You know, that could affect you getting cancer or not. So I, I didn't want to wait my turn. And that's why I jumped into this race. And what are those community areas? Um, you know, it's it's California State Assembly District 64, but there are a lot of people that don't understand, like that the Assembly District itself. What are what are the names of those communities that are represented by District 64? Yeah, that's a great question. A lot of people don't actually know what State Assembly and what it does and what what it's represented by. Um, so there's 80 Assembly districts in California, right? This is District 64. District 64 mainly encompasses South Central LA, a little bit of the South Bay. So it includes the parts of the South Bay are Carson, um, North Harbor Gateway, Broadway, Manchester, a little bit of Gardena, um, and then mostly South Central LA. So Watts, Compton, Wilmington, Willowbrook, Rancho Dominguez, and a little bit of North Long Beach as well. So that's kind of the area of it, if, if you know, you can imagine where it is in our state. I can definitely speak a little more now on some of the issues in the district as well, right? Um, so... Our district, I mean, and this is a perfect story of redlining and of of how this happens. <laughs> you know, I started this campaign talking about systemic racism because it is what my district has gone through. When I tell you, hopefully it'll, it'll make sense. So over a quarter of California's refineries and, and you know, it, are in our district. We have the largest refinery marathon on the entire West Coast of America. We have the largest amount of neighborhood drilling in all of L.A. County in Wilmington, a community that literally was built on the third largest oil field in the United States, which is 
very inequitable. I'm sure we're going to talk more about it uh, later. But and then looking at even just some of the other issues there are educational inequities. I mean, we have only 54% of us have high school degrees and 11.7% of us have college degrees. Our eviction rates in places like Compton are four times that of the LA County average. And, you know, there's increased policing. And, and then you look at who is in that district. It's mostly Latino, 90% um, uh, Black and Latino. And it is the picture, sadly, of systemic racism. Because if you go 15 minutes north, south, east, west to any other community, you'll see education attainment rates are higher. You won't see the density of environmental issues that we see in my district. You'll see clean water, you know. Um, and so this is a story of a lot of districts and communities in America, right? We have redlining happen. We have these marginalized communities near these places. This is why we call it sy- systematic racism, right? Can, can you explain for, we've done it on the show before, but for, for listeners that might not know, can you explain what redlining means? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so basically when we have, when these lines are drawn, right, for congressional districts and for assembly districts, right, they're drawn by people, right? And I believe it's every 10 years, and correct me if I'm wrong, that some of these lines are, are redrawn. And they're done by people. And a lot of these people have agendas, right? So, for example, what will happen is I remember we were looking at one side of, you know, my husband and I were looking at our district. Literally, they could draw a line, you know, in the middle of a street or one side of the houses, right, fall into a district. And the other side of the community, you know, has a different socioeconomic status. It's literally done to essentially, you know, keep a certain group of people in, give them less resources, right, not listen to them as much and keep another group of more privileged people out and taken care of. And so that's a simple way of explaining it. There's, I mean, I'm sure a whole episode could be on redlining, but that's, that's from my understanding is what I understand it, it is. And that's why it's not right, because, again, it's lines drawn by people and these people have agendas and, you know, other special interests in mind. Yeah. And what are they politically doing in regards to those lines? What do they want to get out of those communities or what do they want to take from those communities or not take uh, responsibility for? So you were bringing up some of the environmental justice concerns, water, clean water, access to water, the oil industry. If you want to dive a bit deeper into some of that, you know, what are these large environmental justice concerns that are happening in, in the Assembly District 64, in South Central LA, and then maybe also explain for our listeners that might not know, what is what is meant by environmental justice? Yeah, yeah, I could definitely talk, talk about that. You know, as I mentioned, we have a large concentration of refineries in our area and neighborhood drilling. That is an issue. A major issue is clean water. So, you know, in Compton and Watts, there's there are some issues with the water. It's not consistently clean, at least. Um, I know Watts has more issues. And I think a large part of this is a bill that's actually up there right now, which is SB 625, right? It always comes back to money in politics, right? I mean, I mean, this is a bill that's trying to privatize the water industry. We know that this is never good, just like what's happening to the electric lines we're seeing, you know, that are having a lot of issues and blackouts. Whenever you have, whenever you give more power to these corporations um, and you let them, you know, kind of control our basic rights, like clean water and ability to get power to our homes, it's never a good idea, right? And so anyway, there's a lot of uh, clean water issues, unclean water issues. There's a lot of toxic waste sites in my district. So even when you look at, you know, there's a, there's a map you can look at for the concentration of, you know, toxic sites. My district has so many toxic sites and these are just sites that aren't cleaned up you know, that could be, uh, that are very toxic. Once they seep into the soil, they affect the water, right? And they just, I mean, this we can talk about solutions, but they just haven't been taken care of. Where We have pipes, because um, a lot of the water issues have to do with pipes that just aren't changed in our district, right? It's, it's, it's solutions that are seemingly simple in terms of infrastructure, but it's just not done, right? So we have a lot of old pipes. We have pipes that go close to drilling, um, you know, I remember in the primary when I was walking through Wilmington, it, it broke my heart, this picture. You know, I want to share this with everyone because it, this is, it's forever imprinted, imprinted into my mind. And I knocked on a door, you know, the door was kind of propped open. And I remember walking up to the door, there was a drilling site. And it was kind of a baby that was there. And, you know, it was, it was after work. I'm sure the dad or mom just got home. And then the dad came to the door after. But before I saw the dad, I saw this baby and thought of this child is going to grow up in this home three feet away from this drilling site, you know, what is her future going to be? How is her development going to be affected? You know, is she going to, she's more likely to get cancer and asthma and nosebleeds. I mean, these are real things that happen. You know, we don't, we might not see the chemicals in the air. You can sure smell it in Wilmington, but 
you know, people need to understand the public health impacts, right? It's very real. It's, 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 sci- it's scientific and it is more highly concentrated when you have these environmental issues. So now talk, talk a little bit about justice. To talk about environmental justice, we need to bring up the term environmental racism. With police brutality right now, with Black Lives Matter, this is another way we suppress low-income communities and communities of color, right? And that's what it means. For to really, I think what when I think of justice, I think we need to think about communities that are undergoing injustice. If we make sure these communities become just, it's it's better for all of us, no matter our class, no matter our race, right? So that's what I think it is. I think for me, it's about it's not just about District 64, but in my mind, if we can envision District 64 you know, cleaning up those toxic sites, having clean water, right? Transitioning to renewable energy. This is better for all of California, even for wealthy communities, right? I mean, so that's the way I think about justice. Justice for one community, for one group of people is justice for all, right? So before we get into what those solutions look like, what does justice look like? I can't help thinking if these things have been going on in the community for so long, and and we know they have been, has the incumbent been doing anything to eradicate this situation, these situations, these concerns? What what has been the stance of your of of the other person of Assemblymember Mike Gibson, who has been in the position that he's been in for quite some time? What has he done in order to bring about these solutions that are necessary to to fight the environmental injustice that is happening? Yeah, and with all due respect, he's done nothing. I'm saying that with all due respect to him um, because we have to talk about the climate crisis with this sense of urgency and just truthfulness. I'm just going to say he's done nothing. And I'll, I'll tell you why, in my opinion. I would say this as a constituent, even not as a candidate. I would say he's done nothing because communities in Wilmington, right, and in Watts have been fighting for over 40 years. We've all heard of the Sunrise Movement, right? But we don't always hear these frontline movements that, are, that have been fighting silently for so long, Right. But you know who does hear them but ignores them? It's people like Gibson. It's people like Joe Busfiano, right? It's pe- it's politicians representing them. So I'm just going to say he's had so long to listen to them. He's not only been in the assembly. He's not. He also was in city council. He was also on the side of the refineries in city council. So with all due respect, he's had more than seven years for this time in city council to do something, and he hasn't done anything. And I say that thinking about the urgency of the climate crisis, I'm not going to sit here and say cap and trade is the best solution. He supports cap and trade, but to me, that doesn't go far enough, you know, um, in the grand scheme of things. And so he supported cap and trade, but this is, you know, but a lot of our Democrats supported cap and trade. This is the issue, right? I remember when I was, uh, you know, working with communities in Wilmington, there's a group there I call Communities for a Better Environment. Group of parents, a group of youth, beautiful group, you know, that meets, that has been fighting for so long. They said I was the first politician to even come in their space just to listen. And, you know, I don't I don't speak Spanish fluently. There were things I couldn't understand, but I wanted to be there. And, and thankfully, a lot of it was translating, but I wanted to be there because I wanted them to reestablish trust. I wanted them to know that I'll always be in their spaces. They don't have to work hard to come to me. I'll be there for them. And that hasn't happened from Mike Gibson and leaders in the district. I'm not saying that to make me look good. I'm saying that because that's the way it should be. Everyone, that's the way representation, that's what it means, right? It means that you are representing a people, a community. And and frankly, you know, this has happened because, again, it's coming back to the issue of special interests, right? Time and time again, we see that politicians that take developer money vote against renters. Time and time again, we see politicians like Gibson that take big oil money and big tobacco money, you know, don't vote on the side, side of environmental justice, Time and time again, we see those who take charter school money not vote on the side of public schools. This is not rocket science. It is what's been happening. And it is why, you know, when we talk more about policy, I want to talk about, when I talk about environmental justice for me, it's about making a government just. There are things we can do to get money out of politics that will help environmental justice, that will help housing justice, and a whole lot of other issues to really expand our middle class and reduce the wealth gap in our state. But it, you know, that's what I've seen. I haven't, I haven't seen action from him. I haven't. I really haven't. If you are just tuning in, you are listening to Ecojustice Radio on KPFK Los Angeles. Fatima Iqbal Zubair, candidate for California State Assembly in District 64, is joining us for Candidate Forum for Environmental Justice in South L.A. 
Fatima, we have been talking about environmental justice, environmental injustice, and going into the community and, you know, being there for the community, what that means, what it means to understand what the needs are there, what's happening uh, with with oil extraction, with water rights issues and, and things of that nature. And I did want to mention for our for our listeners as well, I think part of your district covers Willowbrook, doesn't it? It does. And so Willowbrook has had a massive water issue. We did a whole show on that. And they they finally got sort of got the rights to their water where they didn't have it for so long. And they've been they they still are dealing with having some of the dirtiest water available in, in Southern California. And that that's in your district as yes. well. So how do we we go about fixing this? You know, we're talking about the issues, what's going on in the community, but what does that actual justice, when we get to justice, what does that look like? What do the solutions look like? And how would you go about accomplishing that in the state legislature? Right. Good question. So one one thing I want to start before we talk about the exact policy solutions is, you know, just to understand state government, there's a lot of power we have, regardless of that, the guy in the White House or the Congress we have, there's a lot of power we have to kind of do our own thing in California, right? I want to start with something positive. California, you know, has led the way before on environmental issues, right? And we can do it again. We're not doing it right now because, you know, where we are, we have, you know, we approved, I think, you know, almost 40 fracking permits during COVID. We are second in Texas, I believe, to oil drilling or pretty high up. And, and, and we don't even have a buffer zone. Texas actually has a buffer zone established between drilling and homes and we don't. But we can lead the way. So I, I'm hopeful. Like I, I'm, you know, I want to start with that place of hope. I'm hopeful because we have the knowledge, we have the smarts, we have the will, I think, of the people to want to do this. We have groups like, you know, that you are a part of. And, you know, we have passionate environmentalists in the state and like just, see, you know, a lot of great groups to lead the way. So what can we do? First, it just starts with implementation of the policies that are already there. So we have a Clean Water Act, right, that the state has passed, but it's not implemented at the local level. So we need to make sure first that, you know, we hold our city officials accountable, right? We hold our local government accountable to making sure our communities have clean water, right? And, and this has to happen. It, it just ha- it's just about bringing it back to the people, right? Like, like we talked about water rights, it's bringing it back to the people and making sure that we understand that clean water is a human right. And we give that power back to the people and take it away from this, you know, efforts to kind of privatize the water, right? Another thing that we have to do is also just start talking about a just transition, a just transition, right? This isn't going to be easy, right? And and what I love about the Green New Deal, right, is that it is not about taking away people's jobs, right? It's about creating jobs, and it's about making sure that when those jobs are created, they're good-paying jobs, they're unionized jobs, and that takes time. And so I think my frustration with the state legislature is that we haven't done that yet. We don't have a plan to transition yet. We don't. We, we don't have a bill up there that says this is how we're going to do it in 10 years, in 20 years. We simply don't have that. So I, I want to work with the best policy experts in the state, state, the best environmentalists, frontline communities, right, to really first draw out this map, this timeline of how we're going to do this, because it is possible. You know, we can do this, how we're going to have this just transition, work with unions, right, um, on both sides to make sure that this happens in the right way. And, and when that happens, we want to make sure the most marginalized communities get benefit from it. The, the communities that have been suffering the most get that money given back to their community, right? The jobs that are created stay in the community. That's really important to me as well. You know, but logistically speaking, we want to try to get to net zero emissions by 2030 as well, right? We know 2030 is that point that's really a crossroads and we don't, we only have 10 years. That's part of the reason I jumped into this and I could have waited two more years, but I didn't. I wanted to, I want to be a leader. I want to cause some good trouble up there I'm not there to be accountable to anyone else but the people, you know, and um, I just, it's just, it's just so urgent for me because it's, I mean, it causes, look, 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 look at what's happening with the fires, right? With people getting sick. I mean, how long are we going to put up with this? But we need someone who can address this with the urgency. And I, I believe my movement, not just me, but the people that are behind me, we can do this together and with me. So net zero emissions, we need to end any new fracking, right? right? Let, let's end new fracking. That's not good for our health. Let's end neighborhood drilling, but let's start by creating this buffer zone. You know, I mean, we had a fully blue legislature up there and a Democratic senator that actually blocked this bill. And mind you, even though it passed the assembly, AB 345, over 23 Democrats didn't vote yes on it. I want people to think about that. You know, I mean, we there's so much we can do up there with, with the supermajority we have that we're not doing, you know, and it's because 
the state legislature really is bought out by big business. And so we need to make sure we end neighborhood drilling and start by creating that buffer zone. But this is also all encompassing. So what I also want to do is talk about free public transit, right? We need free public transit across the state. Get less people, you know, to drive in their cars to work. That causes a lot of pollution. You know, get that access to free transit. This is also connected to housing, though. So when you build new housing, we want to make sure it's sustainable. We want to make sure housing is built near to where people work, near to schools, right? We need the best urban planners with us to really get this done because it's it's an intersectional issue. And expanding green space is also an important um, aspect of this. I want to also expand green space. That's natural oxygen into the air. And, and the truth is a lot of communities of color, like in Watts, have enough junk food places and liquor stores. But, you know, where are the trees, right? I mean, it's, it's a simple concept, but they're not there. There's just no greenery there. And then access to clean food as well. So that's related to, you know, the green space, but making sure we have, you know, sustainable garden spaces, making sure we have, you know, we support small businesses who want to create these clean food you know, havens in their community, right? Give them tax incentives to do that. So it's access to clean food as well. I wanted to end with that because that's part of the Green New Deal as well. We want to make sure everyone has access to sustainable living. Fatima, you just uh, mentioned Assembly Bill 345, which is the California 2500 health and safety buffer uh, zone that hopefully is going to come back in January to be reconsidered. And I just want to let our listeners know, if you you want any information about that health and safety buffer zone of creating 2,500 feet from an oil rig to an, a drilling site to, um, you know, where we work, live, and play, we, we have an episode, episode 71, No Drilling Where We're Living. Awesome. Uh, check that out. And you'll get even more information. And we definitely need you in January to be able to support what is happening and support people like Fatima who are trying to push this piece of legislation forward. So you had mentioned or alluded to the the money going into the system in order to support issues that you personally do not believe should Mm -hmm. be supported through politics and uh, that there is a pledge called the No Fossil Fuel Money Pledge. And I would like if you could tell our listeners, what is the No Fossil Fuel Money Pledge? And did you take that pledge? Why, if you did take that pledge? And why is it important to you in your district? And I think we've covered that, but yeah, you know, just to well, reiterate. It's, you know, it's, it's really important. Thanks so much for asking that question, because you know, there's a lot of people um, that don't know. There's a lot of political information and stuff that goes on pause that's purposely left out. And I think it's really great to not assume that everyone knows. So thanks for asking that. Yeah, so the No Fossil Fuel Money Pledge is a pledge that you don't take money from big oil, from natural gas, you know. And why is it so important? Well, first, I signed that pledge and my opponent didn't. Um, I want to clarify that. And the reason I signed that pledge is because we have seen the direct impact of those that take big oil and what's done to environmental legislation, how it's killed bills. You know, Senator Hertzberg um, took that no fossil fuel money pledge and actually went back on it and took fossil fuel money. And he was one of the senators that stopped AB 345. You know, so I want viewers to understand that money talks, money talks in politics and I don't want to be a candidate. You know, I mean, I trust my morality, I, I, but I don't want, I want to be a candidate that people trust, that, uh, that is transparent, that is accountable, right? And I, I, I don't want to take that money and have that even over my head, right? A cloud over my head. Why would I do that when I'd rather be bought up by the people? I only want to be bought up by the people, right? I want to fight for the people. And so it is really important that all politicians take it, you know? Yeah. That take the the no fossil fuel money pledge versus right. take the money from the fossil yes, fuel company. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, let me clarify that. Yes, exactly. Thank you. <laughs> Very important differentiation there. Yes. And so to make it a, a right. bit of a shift here, right. uh, you are representing South Central LA, parts of the Harbor area in in Los Angeles. Some people may not know where that is. That's near our harbor. We have the largest port. And it's, it's up from there, uh, Wilmington area and the such. How has COVID-19 disproportionately impacted those areas? Yes. So COVID-19, I mean, this is coming back to that we talk about systemic racism and classism, right? I mean, it's all interconnected. I mean, COVID-19 has disproportionately affected, you know, poor people. Um, black and brown people. And also, I want to point out one community, the Filipino community has actually been greatly impacted as well, um, you know, by COVID-19. And so 
why has this happened? I mean, COVID-19 is a respiratory disease, right? I mean, it's a respiratory disease. So if you live near sources of pollution, if you don't ha- have access to healthy fruits and vegetables and healthy food, right? It is, you're not going to be as healthy. Your body's not going to be able to fight um, this as much. And so that's why we're finding these communities. A lot of communities, you know, low-income communities simply don't have access to healthcare. They're afraid to go to the doctor because of the surprise bills they're going to get. They're afraid to go to the ER because they'll get, there'll be some sort of copay or another bill they're going to get. So it's, it's a combination of living near these these sites and, and not having access to clean food and your immune system being weaker, but also having lack of access to healthcare, but also having lack of access to stable housing. I mean, our, our homeless population, you know, is naturally getting more sick from COVID, right? And it's it's a public health issue for all of us. And so all these issues are intersectional, you know, and that's why I say justice is when we uplift, right, these human rights for everyone, it's better for all of us, right? It makes all our lives better. Mm-hmm. And, and what's your opinion of how our government, how the California government has responded to COVID-19? Have, have we done enough? Do, you know, as, as a representative, would you, would you want that change? Would you want to improve upon it? Yeah, I, you know, I, I wrote an, I wrote an op-ed on this, you know, about, about did we do enough? I referred to it a little bit there, but I, I don't think we've done enough. And I think that during COVID, you know, Gavin Newsom and the state legislature is trying. I, you know, I'm not saying they're not trying to do enough, but I simply think that when you have so many systemic injustices that when a pandemic hits and you're not prepared, like those systems aren't in place, these policies are reactive and reactive policies are like a band-aid and they don't solve the problem. For example, we had, you know, um, Operation uh, Roomkey, and I hope I'm, I think that's the name of it, but it was a, it was that idea to get, you know, folks into hotels, these vacant hotels, right, or rooms. However, COVID positive patients were left out of that. They weren't even allowed to, you know, get a room. And so, and, and, and it, it hasn't, you know, kept up to the promises that, you know, that to house the amount of people it said it would house or as fast as it said it would house rather too. And, you know, look at the testing centers. It was kind of too little, too late. And and now when we still get testing, I mean, it takes a long time in, in a lot of places to get your results back. I hear of nurses, I mean, in Compton and, you know, in, in other low-income communities, low-income clinics, not having appropriate PPE and equipment. This is also an issue related to our for-profit health, in, you know, health industry that, you know, n- not only doesn't center patient care, but doesn't center health provider care, right? Doesn't center the safety of nurses. So, you know, what I'm trying to say is that, you know, while the state, I think, is trying to overcome these difficulties, it, this is why it's so important to not have these smaller reforms and reactive policies. It's really so important to think about what systems are not working and how do we drastically shift it, right? I mean, I mean, we have to address these things with the urgency receipts. And I think it's the reason that California has had the most wealth, but we, we have the largest homeless issue in the entire country. That is why we do, because with, we are not allocating the wealth. We're not putting the money into the right places, you know, into our social safety net, into making sure people have housing and healthcare. And I think, I mean, that's why we haven't, um, I mean, these reactive policies are, are simply not enough, you know? And and I want to also point out that, you know, public education was cut in the budget because of COVID. And that's so sad because, I mean, that the most marginalized communities are going to suffer right there too, you know? And another issue that comes to mind with really the schools is broadband access. And, you know, I know for a fact a lot of my students are struggling with that. Forty percent of students in Watson Willowbrook don't have broadband access. How are they going to learn? You know, how are those kids going to learn? They're going to miss a year of learning and fall behind. And so these are systemic issues that the state. This is why we need these human rights guaranteed broadband access, clean air, clean water, healthcare. These things are so important because when a pandemic hits, when a crisis hits, it allows us to be ready. You know, so. And my question to you, and I. And I I feel like you've answered this, but maybe not calling it out straight forward. Are, are these responses discriminatory? Mm-hmm. You know, are we, when we say, oh, when we look, we, our listeners listen to this, or, you know, we're digesting this information saying, oh, there are communities out there that don't have access to certain elements that maybe we could fund because they, things are being taken away, like, you know, access to broadband and things of that nature. I don't know if all of us wrap our head around this concept that these systemic issues by nature and how they've been designed and how they came about are based in discrimination. 
and are based in a form of racism. Mm -hmm. and what are your thoughts? Yeah, I hundred percent agree. I mean, I you know Robert Reich. I love I love it what he talks about. If you you know he has some a couple of great documentaries on Netflix that talks about income inequality and saving capitalism. I mean, those are two great shows on Netflix that I want to just ask our viewers to watch because he talks a lot about this issue. And I don't mean to, you know, talk about this over and over again, but we simply have a government and systems that are protecting, uh, you know, our corporations, protecting our billionaires and are not protecting our middle class. And, and you did mention communities of color, but to me, it's also an issue of poor communities. We have rural, you know, thinking outside the state, we have rural white communities, poor communities, you know, in Kentucky and in, in the, in, the um, in Georgia and all these communities, it's also an issue of classism, right? So racism and classism. And I think that's because we have a government that's designed to protect the top 1% and not protect the middle class and, and, and those in the lower class and those that are, are, are black and brown. And a perfect example of that is that if you look at in COVID in California, how much the billionaires and the corporations have actually earned, it's been more than pre-pandemic time. They have done exorbitantly well, you know, while we've seen more people get homeless and lose their jobs. And that is just a perfect example of who the system is really working for. They are literally profiting while we are dying, you know, while communities are dying from COVID and where people are losing their jobs and can't pay their rent. I mean, we see the top 1% profiting. How is that just? How is that a just California? And to me, it's not. But to me, that's why I talk, talk about this revolutionarily radical change and causing good trouble, you know, um, because it's time that we really honestly are not just affiliated to party. That's not enough, right? We have to call the party out when it's not doing enough. We have to be affiliated and be elite. You know, our allegiance should be only to the people, only to the people. And that's, and we don't have that right now in our state legislature. We simply don't. And that's why we're seeing this wealth disparity, this income disparity and all these, this disparity in health and COVID that we talked about. If you are just tuning in, you are listening to Ecojustice Radio on KPFK Los Angeles. Fatima Iqbal Zubair, candidate for California State Assembly in District 64, is joining us for Candidate Forum for Environmental Justice in South LA. Fatima, both you and your opposing candidate, Assembly Member Mike Gibson, have expressed your stance on recent uprisings from Black Lives Matter and other groups regarding policing locally and, and in America in general. What do you believe should be our vision for the, the criminal justice system in California and the United States? And how will we and you achieve that vision? Yeah, I love that question. Thank you so much for asking that. You know, I'll focus first on California. I mean, we ha I, I believe that we, first of all, need a decarceration budget. Right now, our budget fo focuses still exorbitantly a lot on prisons, incarceration, we still are a state that has people on death row and the death penalty, which is costing our state millions of dollars. So first, let's end the death penalty. Let's, um, you know, let's make sure we have a decarceration, but decarceration budget that really prioritizes instead of, you know, jailing people, right? Prioritizes healthcare, environment, schools, um, mental health services. You know, there are schools in Compton and in Watts. I mean, that don't have a nurse, that don't have psychologists, social workers, you know, and, and this is ridiculous. Let's prioritize that more. Let's prioritize everyone having clean water more. So first, we got to look at our budget and create a budget that's really humanitarian. And um, secondly, what we need to do is end, end qualified immunity, right? I mean, this is something that protects really the... What, what, what is that? What's qualified immunity? Right. So qualified immunity, and I'm not a criminal justice expert, so I'll talk about you know how much I know about it, but they're, they're police unions, right, that really protect police officers you know, and unions are great, but not when it is so rigged against the victims, right, of police brutality. And that's what police unions are. They have such a over, like a large level of influence. And they really, so qualified immunity means that these unions, in the way they are designed, protect police officers if we're, they were to engage in brutality or if they were to kill someone, you know. Um, and that's why we see not enough police officers really getting charged, or even getting investigated, I mean, or even having evidence being released. You know, I talked to defense lawyers that, that say it's so hard, you know, to get all the evidence released. I mean, it's because the system is rigged in favor of the police officers and against the victims of police violence. So that's one thing we have to change. And other thing that could help with that is making sure that these crimes are independently investigated. Right now, we don't have, you know, 
a way that these these crimes, these crimes of police brutality are independently investigated. If the sheriff's department is involved in any way, you know, it, it's not going to be an, un, a, uh, an unbiased investigation. So that's another thing. But another huge thing, back to this issue of money. I mean, I'm going to bring up the Jackie Lacey and, you know, uh, George Gasson race right now because we see how little she's prosecuted these killer cops. And so, and if you look at it, it's again a direct correlation, right, to how much money is being put, you know, I mean, how much money you're taking from police packs, police unions. My opponent, you know, Gibson has taken, I believe, 140000 you know, um, over the course of his time from what is his fifth or sixth most, I believe, you know, um, in the entire legislature taking money. And that's affected his votes, you know. It's affected his votes on criminal justice as well and on bail amounts and cash bail and things of that nature. And so we need to end that as well. We need to get we need to get the police money also out of politics to make sure we have a just we can really create a just criminal justice system. I, and I want to shout out the California State Party, the Progressive Caucus. Um, Amar Shurga, who's leading that, I, their caucus actually calls for any for every Democrat who's part of that caucus, right? For any legislator to actually disavow that money and. And, you know, there are a few that have given, you know, have given their money back and which is great. But I think we need to get that out. You know, we can't have police money. If we have police money in politics, it's, we're simply not going to get the criminal justice that we deserve. You had also mentioned previously the Green New Deal. Uh, and, and so what is the Green New Deal for maybe some of our listeners that might not know or would like a refresher? And what does that look like in in South LA and the South Bay areas? Yeah, it's really a it's really a, an amazing vision, right? Um, the Green New Deal is an amazing vision for that really addresses the climate crisis with the urgency that it deserves. It was originally introduced right to Alexander Ocasio Cortez, um, you know, by the Sunrise Movement, right? This was written initially by a group of youth. I mean, and so th- this is amazing, right? And then and it was it's something that's taken on by you know Senator Ed Markey. And, and AOC. And, and I just want to plug in Ed Markey right now. I hope he does win um, his, his race. He's, his, uh, his voice is so important for climate justice. So I'm really rooting for him. But it is this bold vision that really is really addresses the climate crisis with, with, with the urgency deserves. Right. Um, it doesn't have all the intricacies worked out yet, but it is a vision and we have to start with a vision. And so what does it look like in South LA? Right. I mean, this is going to sound like a dream, but this is what it means. And, and what I say may take 10 years, and for some of this, the Green New Deal in South Italy may take 20 years. But it's so urgent that we got to act now so we can get it done as soon as possible. What it looks like in South LA is so many things. I mean, it looks like, when I'm imagining, it looks like that all housing is built, you know, it's sustainable housing, right? Any new housing. Um, it looks like, you know, more green spaces. It looks like, honestly, we've we had a just transition away from these refineries, that we don't have drilling happening near homes that we have the creation, you know, of, uh, we have these batteries that can store, you know, renewable energy so we can actually run our homes and run our businesses and run our schools, you know, uh, with renewable energy. And yeah, and it looks like clean air, like good air quality, not like the air quality that we see, you know, in a lot of these indexes we look at, right? We want to look, we want to see nice air quality. It looks like water being clean. I mean, you know, clean water is a human rights issue, you know, water is life, you know, and so... You know, it looks like that no one, someone can open up their tap and, and really just get clean water and drink tap water, you know, and, and it looks like, you know, free public transit. And, and honestly, it's just, it, it looks like a com- community where communities can really thrive, right? And be healthy. And, and I, I know to the viewers, a lot of this probably sounds like a pipeline dream, but it really isn't. It really isn't. These things are all achievable by policy. It does take courage. It does take having all, you know, the oil companies against you. And it does take, having, you know, a lot against you. I, mean, I know around the world people die when they sign up for environmental justice. This is very true. But it, it takes a movement and it takes candidates that are bold enough to not be afraid to do this and, and speak up against other politicians who aren't with them, you know. And it's a bold vision, but it's achievable, which is I want people to know it's achievable. Achievable and accessible as yes. well. Because I think sometimes uh, we, we have these wonderful ideas of having mm-hmm. electric cars and fueling and- stations solar panels in our homes and things of that nature. But, you know, the cost of them, the cost of implementation is not always accessible. So that being part of Green New Deal, too, right. is that Thank it's not mentioned. just yes. serving the, the, the higher income uh, communities. Uh, my last plastics question for you mm-hmm. and, and going to ask a few other um, uh, where you stand on a few other issues. But I 
my, my nonprofit is Adventures in Waste. I'm, I've been working in the waste industry for 15 years. What is your opinion regarding the plastics industry and manufacturing, taking extended producer responsibility for the products that they create that will eventually be disposed of in your community, but also are refined in the communities that you would be servicing and the communities that you right now live in uh, and, and work in, that they're refined there, the plastic is manufactured there in some areas, and that's not even recorded very well. Should, should these companies, these plastic manufacturing companies, be responsible for reducing the amount of resources that they utilize, the air pollution that they're creating, the water pollution they're creating, and supporting reuse opportunities of their products and ensuring that their product is recyclable and compostable or compostable because there's not recyclable and compostable. Let's be clear about that. <laughs> I have deep opinion yeah. on that one. In the current market, there's my soapbox, but I would love your opinion on what you yeah. feel the plastics, plastics industry should be doing. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you're more an expert about me on this issue. So I'd love to also just, you know, learn more from you, but I'll tell you what I do know about it. You know, it comes back to, you know, plastics actually made from oil, from what I understand, right? I mean, it's a product of oil. So to me, it's all connected. It's all about profit. I mean, it's all about continuing this dependence on oil. It all comes to that. And and I, I don't think it's fair to continue encouraging the plastic industry to continue. We need to also, I feel like, transition away from it. And then to me, in my mind, when it comes to recycling, you know, I taught a little bit of this in my science course. And I remember learning with my students that a lot of, a lot of the process of even recycling, from what I understand, is not good for the environment, right? And a lot of it is, you know, sometimes done in China or in other places. But then why are we giving China pollution? You know, it's like, it's, it's, it's just bad globally, right? So that's what I understand from it. Like, just the whole process is not good for the environment, not good for people, not good for our ocean life. Right. And I want to just plug in here. There was a there was an, a conservation bill, I believe, also the state legislature. I forget the number, but my opponent didn't vote yes on that either. But you know, that's another story. But but anyway, it's not good for ocean life. It's not good for fauna. It's not good, you know, and how it's like you said, refined, how it's broken down. So I, I honestly think that from what I understand and correct me if I'm wrong, there is also a plastic lobby. Right. There's a lobby for this as well, because any industry that holds profits wants to continue. But at the end of the day, you're right. We have to look at how it's really impacting our most marginalized communities and how it's impacting our global pollution as well. Right. And it's not, it's not necessarily good from what I understand. Like I said, from recycling, we might shift our recycling overseas, but that's not fair if you think about a global community. Right. And yeah. so those are my, my views on it. Yeah. And they call that uh, we have a guest that calls that waste colonization. Wow. And I've never heard that term, but that's good. Yes. I'm going to use that now. Very Great. solid term. Right. Yes. And yes. I think the piece of legislation that you were talking about was SB 54 and 1080, yes. which is Thank a you. plastic circular economy legislation. Mm -hmm. So to jump into public school, uh, you are a public school teacher yes. in Watts. How is our current education system perpetuating inequity? And what is your vision for the future of education? I know that you had talked about broadband access and things of that nature. Yeah. I think just like we have a Green New Deal for the environment, and this is not as popular, we need a new deal for public education, right? I really believe it's not maybe the sexiest topic that politicians talk about, you know, but it, it has to become the sexiest topic because it's so important. I mean, I wouldn't have been a teacher otherwise. I really believe in my heart education can be the great equalizer, but it's not right now. And so what I really want to do is, first of all, like end the privatization of our, of our school industry, right? I really believe that the charter school lobby is strong, the private school lobby is strong, and we need to end that. We need to really make sure that we are fully investing our public schools. I wholeheartedly support, first of all, I want to just uh, talk about Prop 15, Schools and Communities First. That's going to be on the ballot for our viewers because I would I encourage everyone to vote yes on it. You know, we are having property taxes on, you know, big businesses, not small businesses, right, to really help get millions of dollars um, into our schools, not just that, but into our communities, into uh, getting more social workers, into small businesses. And so I encourage everyone and to vote yes on it, do your research, but you know, I'm definitely going to be voting yes on it, advocate for it. But yeah, we need to get more funding into our public schools. We are still the lowest in per pupil funding, so it starts there. We do have a lot of kids in the state. And when we look at our budget, you know, it's, it's like we put a lot into education, but I'm sorry, it's not enough. It's not enough. We, when you look at per pupil funding, it's about taking care of every kid. You know, my son has autism, right? And I, he goes to the public school system and I know how much I had to fight to get him what he deserved and a lot of my students as well. And so that shouldn't be the case, right? The, the, the schools should be able to provide all the services needed. So that's number one, just increase per pupil funding. 
um, we need to make sure that, you know, that our teachers are also paid more, you know. I experienced this in Watts. I saw great teachers leave. I saw a lot of subs. Um, and and we, we need to attract our best teachers from marginalized communities. So I also support paying our teachers more. You know, I, I know for Santa Howard, I worked as a teacher. And and I know my husband was an engineer. And nothing against engineers. But I know I was grading all weekend. I was lesson planning. I, I was getting three, four hours of sleep a night. So we need to respect our teachers. We need to make sure class sizes are small. I mean, this is, I could talk. We could do a whole show on public education. So I'll just try to hit the bullet points. But just, you know, we need to have project-based learning in every, yeah, we should do it. I would, oh my God, I, I'm just as passionate about education as about the environment. So I would totally do it, but I'll just do some bullet points, uh, but we need to make sure that class sizes are small, make sure that we have project-based learning. You know, we have digital access in every classroom, make sure that all schools, you know, are unionized. And we need to, I all, even, I have actually have a plan, you know, like with, we were in sustainability, we waste a lot at our schools. We throw away paper. I experienced as a teacher, you know, like, I didn't have recycling bins at my school. Not that recycling is the best way, but it's better than throwing it in the trash, you know, and we waste a lot of paper. This is why I really support digital, you know, going digital at schools. And it's about sustainability. Why are we wasting so much paper? You know, let's get all our schools running on renewable energy, right? Let's get clean water at all our schools. It's about that too. From the other, both other ends of the spectrum, I also support universal high quality pre-K and childcare. I saw firsthand how state-funded programs in Compton and Watts, I know the teachers there, how hard they work but they simply don't get the funding from the state like a private preschool would. We have to fund our first five years. We need to, that's our California's future. You know, we need to fund our first five years. I always think about it this way, that when I taught my students in Watts, right, this is a good investment for everyone, whether you're rich or poor. We are missing out on the best scientists. We are missing out on the best engineers, the best doctors, the best teachers, if we don't invest in all our communities. You know, I had a robotics team that I started in Watts. I know this firsthand. I, I always believe I taught the smartest kids in the world. And that's why I'm here because I saw how, how much they had to offer, but how much the system, you know, they were always reaching, but the system was so expensive or things were inaccessible. And so anyway, I, I want to, you know, end with this is that we have to really make sure we also support college access right now. Public college costs, UC and Cal States are just skyrocketing. You know, I support tuition free college. California used to have that, you know, a few decades ago. You know, and 13 states have actually passed this. So why don't we have, we're doing it at the community college level. Let's pass tuition for your colleges. You know, I know this firsthand. My students in Watts are working full-time jobs trying to pay for the cost of college. That's simply not fair. Fatima, some, some people argue that green jobs, environmentalism, social justice, that those things are an opposition of labor and unions. Is that the case? It's not. It's really not. And 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 if, if there are unions in the oil industry, you know, that are brain, honestly, those those union leaders are, are brainwashing, you know, some of the people in that union, because I hear that this happens this is the truth, right? They tell them, oh, you know, this, this is to take away your jobs, they're going to take away your job in the industry. It's not about that. And it's it's really not about that. Because, you know, a great example is LA City Council, you know, passed in the ELAN project in 2019, which is you know, um, about getting the batteries and, and getting LA, LA to solar. Initially, you know, this didn't pass. But once they got unions from both sides of the table, it passed. So that's a perfect example of what we can do, right? We can, you know, when, when we talk about a just transition, that's what it means. It's about, you know, not, you know, saying the oil industry and the oil unions are evil. It's about saying, okay, let's work with the workers of this industry. Let's work with the unions in this industry. And let's look at, you know, uh, the unions in the solar industry, the ministry, and let's come to the table and come up with a way that we can work together, right? That's what it's really about. And and that's what the word a just transition means in a Green New Deal. It means that no job, we shouldn't have a transition if it's not just. That's simply what it means, right? If, it, if the jobs aren't protected, if they aren't good paying jobs with a living wage, if they're not, you know, uh, unionized jobs, and if they're not done with proper training and, you know, and making sure people don't lose a paycheck, then it's not a just transition. And I think that's why it's so important to start this transition so soon, because it's not easy to achieve that, right? When you talk about changing the grid of California to be renewable, it is not easy, but it's absolutely possible. It's absolutely possible when you surround yourself, right, with the unions, with environmental experts, with housing experts, you know, and, and, and even with oil industry executives, have them, have them all at the table, because this is about talking about a good future for all of us. The people in these oil industries are actually have some of the worst health problems. They're, they're closest to some of the pollution, the toxic chemicals. And so it's about them too. It's not about demonizing anyone. It's about really caring about our planet, 
caring about our communities and thinking about others before ourselves and thinking about people before profits. That's really what it's about. And coming together and building that just community all together as a team, whether we are politically agreeing or not, Mm. it's making sure that we're all moving forward to that, to that, that, that place that we want to live that, Mm. you know, that we want to breathe the same because we're all breathing the same air. Exactly. Whether you're rich, poor, white, black, brown, you're breathing the same air. (laughs) You are. We're living on the same planet. And if you're in California, you're living in the same state, you know, so. There's no walls between communities. I mean, air flows, you know. <laughs> exactly. Water and, flows, I mean, you know. And yeah, for, know. for our listeners that w- mm-hmm. want to know a little bit more about, you know, working with unions, we, we interviewed Quasi, who has helped in the formation of SoCal 350 in the, the, on episode 72, Building Unity for Social Change. So that's a really good episode, episode 72, if you, if, uh, for our listeners that want to know a little bit more about building unity with unions in the environmental community. So in the, the, the remaining minute that we have here, what is the next step in the campaign process? I, I, it's November when the election happens. Maybe remind everyone when they need to um, vote and um, when they need to be registered by and what other further resources would you like to share and where can people find your campaign? Yeah. Thank you so much. I mean, it's really important. I mean, voting is about what you want to see in your community. It's as simple as that, right? It's not really about the candidates, about the issues, you know, and what they stand for and, and, you know, and um, and so you know, I I, I the, the date the last day to register, I believe, and check this is, is October nineteenth. Um, it's around that time, but do check me on that. I do know vote by mail ballots go out October fifth, um, and so you know, California. I want to remind everyone is a vote by mail state, um, and so everyone's going to get a vote my vote my by mail ballot regardless of whether you're signed up for one or not. You automatically can get it in the mail, so watch out for that. Watch out for your sample ballot. For politicians like me who aren't are going to be outraised by corporate politicians, right? Our statement is what you want to read, right? You're not going to get 20 million mailers from me, but I do have a statement in the official ballot book. So read that. And yeah, and, and the last day to vote is November 3rd, right? So just make sure I would I would suggest everyone with the scary things that are happening with the postal service right now, right? I mean, I you know, get get that ballot in as soon as, as you can. Um want to tell folks to go to Ballotpedia and Voters Edge to find out about the propositions and about the issues. Those are free sources, right, uh, for all our viewers. And yeah, so my campaign, you know, where we're at is, you know, we're, we're campaigning in COVID. So our main strategy is phone banking. We are trying to get out a few mailers. But uh, it's really about, you know, voter contact through phone banking um, at this point. And so we're just hoping we can reach the voters we need to reach in time to get our message passed. And, you know, my website is, is FatimaForAssembly.com and in, in, on Twitter, I'm at Fatima, the number for assembly and Instagram and Facebook is Fatima, the word for assembly. So follow me there. My website has all the information. If you want to support candidates like me, honestly, who don't take that, you know, take the no fossil fuel money pledge. By the way, I also took the no cop money pledge, which Mike Gibson didn't take. You know, we are really counting on these uh, donations, grassroots donations. So just donate if you're able to volunteer, if you're able to, all that helps our people power movement. Thank you yeah. so much. And yes, the last day to register online to vote is October 19th. Okay. Monday, October 19th. Thank you. Thank you so much, Fatima, yeah, for being you. on the show. It's great to be here. Thank you for like talking about these important issues. Thank you. Great to have you. Thank you to our guest today, Fatima Iqbal Zubair, candidate for California State Assembly in District 64. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. This has been the Candidate Forum for Environmental Justice in South L.A., Please connect with us on social media at EcoJustice Radio SoCal 350 and Adventures in Waste. If you like what you heard and you want others to be informed, subscribe to our podcast and share the episodes. listening to Eco Justice Radio, a project of SoCal 350. The show can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and at ecojusticeradio.org. Created by Mark and JP Morris, executive producer Jack I, engineer Blake Lampkin, interview hosted by Jessica Aldridge from Adventures in Waste, and original music by Javier Cadre. And until next time, remember, the power is yours.